Welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Dr. Joni Cannell shares communication strategies for technical people. She shares her own stories of learning to communicate and brings in other nerds and experts to show you how to interact with people in a way that's comfortable for you. And now, here's your host, the uniquely qualified engineer turned psychologist, Dr. Joni Cannell. Hello, and welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Today, we've got a special person from Intuit. His name is Alex Bellage. You may know him. He's a senior vice president and chief architect. Let's say hi to Alex. How are you doing today, Alex? I'm doing great, John. How are you? It's great I'm, to be here. Yes, I'm so glad you're here and very honored that you would take the time out to talk to our audience here of nerds <laughs> about people <laughs> skills. Yeah. Um, you've um, obviously achieved a lot in your career here, uh, being a senior vice president already at Intuit. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? How did you get there? What? How, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. So <clears throat> I was born actually in Ohio. So I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, growing up in the Midwest in the 1980s was uh, interesting things. You look at the TV show Stranger Things and you look at some of the ways that society was back then. And I think they just nailed it so amazingly what it was to grow up in the 1980s. Um, but, you know, I, I always had this uh, feeling that I, I needed to expand my horizons and, and, um, and step away from the environment where I grew up. And so uh, postgraduate, I actually moved to California, to Northern California, and lived in the Bay Area for about five years. <laughs> I worked for uh, Carl Zeiss Medical, writing software for ophthalmic devices, corneal mappers, retinal mappers, things like that. Uh, my first professional programming language was actually assembly. Uh, right, had, I remember that. That was back yeah. then in the 80s, too. That's right. <laughs> so assembly to C to C++ to Java and then a couple of other different languages, kind of the, the major progression for me. And then obviously the things like JavaScript. And then I um, went to go work for a, a startup in Boston, so I moved all the way across the country again. And a couple months uh, into my career in that startup, it really just wasn't what I hoped it would be. Mm -hmm. And then my mentor at Zeiss, basically said, hey, we, I work for a company called Intuit, and we just bought a company in Boston, a little startup, and you should go interview there. And so I went and interviewed for this company, uh, at this company in 1999. And they offered me a role, and I took the role in October of 1999, so that was almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And I've been at Intuit ever since. Uh, it's been an amazing journey. I spent about the next eight years working in the Boston office of Intuit. Uh, about eight years in, as I was progressing through my career, I started off as a frontline engineer, a uh, quiet engineer, sitting in my cube, writing lots and lots of code, very, very happy. Uh, but then there were moments where I decided that I wanted to progress in my career and grow, and there was greater opportunity for me at the time uh, to be in one of the California offices, so I moved to the San Diego office. And so my family and I have been in San Diego for about the past 11 years. Uh, and... I've had various roles as I've, I've grown in my career, starting off as a lead engineer on some of our identity systems, uh, then became a chief architect of, of our identity strategy at Intuit. I uh, spent four years as the chief architect for the consumer group, which includes TurboTax and Mint, and the past two years as the chief architect for Intuit, the entire company. And so it's been uh, an amazing journey. I can't believe, I never would have imagined I'd spent 20 years at the same company, but I, I've been able to grow myself, challenge myself, uh, develop both my technology skills and my people skills at the same time, and it's one of the reasons I've been here for such a long time. 
Yeah, well, it's not a bad place to be, really. I mean, yeah, yeah Intuit, everyone knows what a great company. Um, one of the things you said, yeah, maybe it maybe implied was that, uh, you know, you were kind of quiet as an engineer, maybe growing up more introverted. How did you branch out of that? Because now, I mean, your role, you are out there talking to everyone. You're here on the show. I mean, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You know what? I was a total introvert growing up. Uh, I was uh, always kind of confident in my personal skills, my personal ability, but I, I had trouble communicating it. I didn't have the confidence that I actually could communicate it effectively. Uh, there was kind of this dissonance between what I felt, what I could, I could say, and what I eventually felt like was coming out of my mouth. And so it led me to not say things. And I constantly was afraid that uh, I would say something stupid. And so based on who I was, I was an engineer, I would have all this experience, I was supposed to be really smart, and I felt like if I couldn't say something smart, I didn't want to say anything. And I felt this need to be the smartest person in the room, and if I, if I didn't feel I was, then I didn't say anything. And it really led to kind of this, or at least was a part of this introvert nature. And, you know, there were a couple of uh, uh, events in, in my early my intuit career where some of my leadership moved on. This was the leadership that basically was responsible for communicating to the rest of Intuit and responsible for going and figuring out what projects we would work on. Mm -hmm. And they all left. And when they all left, I said, now what am I supposed to do? Right. And I felt really sorry for myself. And I went, <laughs> I was afraid, I was angry, I was upset. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I just said, this is an opportunity for me. And I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to transform myself into the kind of person who can communicate. And so I, I, I had some great, great mentors and coaches in, in my life. And at some point I'd love to talk about, you know, my philosophy on mentoring and coaching because it's something that's very, very important to me right now. Um, but, you know, through, through that process, what I learned was I had to start putting myself out there. And one of the ways that Intuit teaches it, Intuit actually teaches this quite well, is you can think of it like three concentric circles. There's your comfort zone, there's your learning zone, and then there's your panic zone. And the only way to make your learning zone bigger, I'm sorry, your comfort zone bigger, is to get into your learning zone. Mm -hmm. If you get too far out of your learning zone, you actually get to your panic zone, and that's what people are afraid of, right? Yeah. So what I realized is I was just sitting there quietly in my comfort zone. And so I started pushing myself into my learning zone, but then I learned, one of the most important things I learned is, one of the reasons you have great mentors and coaches is that if you do get into your panic zone, they can help you come back, right? So yeah. now suddenly you've got this safety net. And so what I did is I started um, taking on bigger responsibility. I started first saying, okay, I'm not even comfortable presenting in a room full of three or four people. Let me just do that. Let me find three or four people I'm comfortable with, talk to them. And how does that go into five people? How does that go to 10 people? How does that go to 20 people? Um, and I'd be lying to you if I told you it was some kind of easy progression. It's not, but it has gotten to the point for me where I've presented at conferences in front of 500, 600, 1,000 people, and I, I'm excited, but I don't actually get nervous anymore about it. Uh, and the one last quick thing that I'll bring up is that the last really important part of the, the transformation for me is uh, this transformation from, from hoping that I was the smartest person in the room to expecting that I'm the dumbest person in the room. And being Ooh, okay with that. Yes. I'm completely okay with that. And so the whole idea is to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, 
build an amazing environment, a diverse environment with, with great outside in thinking. Um, and, and then you are basically the cultivator of great outcomes instead of being the one who seems, feels like you're wholly responsible for delivering that outcome yourself. I'm just curious, does that happen as you moved more into leadership to surround yourself by smarter people? Or would you think that as an engineer, that would also be something you would strive for? Well, you definitely should strive for it as an engineer. Uh, you know, I think that what ends up happening as an engineer is that you want to find really smart people to learn from and develop, but we get very competitive with people in our same yeah. world. Yeah. Um, I do think that as you get into more leadership roles, you realize that it's the only way to be successful. And I've mm -hmm. seen leaders who tried to be a leader and be the smartest person in the room, and it doesn't work. Smart people don't want to work for you. Um, pe smart people with great ideas don't want to speak up. Uh, and so, you know, as, as an engineer, your job is basically to assert and basically to take up space. And I realized that as a leader, my job is actually to create space so that other people can step into that space. And when I did that, suddenly this, the whole notion around extrovert versus introvert almost became like a misnomer, right? Because it wasn't necessarily about me becoming an extrovert, it's about me bringing in great diverse thought and, and viewpoint from everyone, including many engineers who are introverts. And as I started to do that with others, I actually personally became more comfortable with it too. Mm -hmm. So how do you pull in the introverts to share their ideas? Do you have any tips on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a, as a leader, you need to be very aware of what's going on in the room, what's the, the, the dynamic. And uh, it's, you know, one of the things that we talk about at Intuit is, the, is our strategy around diversity and inclusion. And both of those things are important, right? So if you just seek diversity, like to say you create a beautifully diverse workforce, and you're not inclusive of all the viewpoints with the diversity you brought in, what have you really done, right? And so right. when I'm in a meeting, and I'll look around the room and I'll scan the room and I'll figure out, are there people who actually aren't saying anything? And how do I create a mechanism to get them to speak, right? And in the simplest sense, you just say, hey, you know, hey, Gene, what's, what's your, your opinion on that? Or, hey, Michael, what's your opinion on that? Um, but what you really want to do is to maybe ask a question in a way that you know that that person is an actually an expert and you draw them in so that they actually will contribute. Mm -hmm. And so it is about creating that environment where people feel comfortable to speak up because it's an area of expertise for them. You know, we all have either a native genius, the thing that we natively are really good at and we can share with others, or the thing that we learned that we're very good at and we can share with others. Right. And, and how do we find these opportunities to draw that out? Because it, it actually doesn't make an introvert, I remember this myself, it doesn't make an introvert comfortable to just like directly be told, hey, why don't you say something? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's about how do you create that safe moment where they feel like, oh, I can say something now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, that's really good insight. Well, one of the things you keep talking about is diversity and inclusion. It's very important to add into it in general, but for you in particular, uh, tell us about the different roles that you take on to really drive that at, into it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there's a couple different things. One is I'm on the tech, uh, the executive advisory board of Tech Women and Intuit. Um, mm -hmm. Tech Women and Intuit as a program to attract, uh, develop, and retain uh, tech women. And it, it basically it, uh, is at all levels, so from entry level all the way to executive level. And it's, it's basically a program designed around making sure that we're very conscious in terms of every aspect of how we do work 
to to really understand its relationship to our our, our uh, female diversity, and so that includes how we write job recs to the construction of our interview panels to make sure that females are represented on the interview panels, to understanding where we are from a balanced perspective and the percentages at different levels. You know, at one point we saw that we were actually really good at, at having tech women at, at the early career, we were really good at the senior levels and we kind of had this gap in the middle. So we put together specific programs to help develop and, and attract uh, at, the, at those levels as well. So that's one around tech women and Intuit. The other is, um, I'm actually on the, the, the advisory board of a great company called uh, Lead Inclusively, uh, which is a, a local company here in San Diego, uh, which is designed around uh, uh, basically allowing large organizations to uh, learn techniques of how to create more inclusive work environments. And so it's not just kind of a typical uh, teach, test, and then leave. It's more about how do we use technology to actually be in place in the moment with different members of the workforce, like those frontline managers or those senior managers, and actually give them the tools so that they can actually create a diverse and inclusive uh, workforce. Uh, and then the last, which I think is something that wouldn't show up on my on my uh, resume or LinkedIn mm -hmm. profile too much, is just that I am extremely passionate about mentoring and coaching and sponsorship. Right. I think sponsorship is really critical. You know, it's one thing to to mentor, and you know, when you mentor, you basically are allowing someone to reflect. When you're coaching, you're basically saying, "Well, instead of doing this, maybe you should do that." With sponsorship, you're actually trying to work behind the scenes and create opportunity to allow these amazing female technologists that Intuit um, shine. Uh, and so uh, I, I make it a point to uh, reserve a part of my schedule to coach and sponsor uh, tech women and Intuit. And I've seen the, the fruits of that success. We've had some frontline engineers that we hired four or five years ago straight out of school. And in the beginning, you could see all the traditional things around imposter syndrome and lack of confidence and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're just these amazing leaders, right? And you know, I feel like I had a small role to play, and mainly it's them. Um, but just to see them grow into these amazing leaders, which then uh, leads to a workforce that has more diverse viewpoint, and then therefore the outcomes we deliver are better. It's just it's just an amazing, amazing thing to see. And so I, I try to find whatever opportunity I can uh, to inject myself and be a be a great advocate as it relates to diversity. Uh, tech women is kind of the first step, and then you know we're moving into the the other areas of diversity as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And um, just the progress that you've seen of bringing the women and how beneficial it is to everyone, not just them. I mean, to you too, clearly as a leader in the company. Uh, what about other men? I mean, do you work with other men to be more inclusive uh, of women and, and others as well? Or you know, how does that work out? Absolutely. You know, that's a great question, um, especially since there's a lot of disinformation as it relates to diversity. Uh, you know, the first things that you hear from many men as you, as you talk through these, these initiatives is, oh, are we lowering the bar? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Are we um, making it easier to be recruited to work it into it? And, you know, I was actually at um, Grace, the Grace Hopper celebration a couple of years ago, and I was part of a, an executive forum, and one of the speakers there basically said, anyone who says that you're lowering the bar to increase female participation, I challenge you to tell me what your bar is. Describe your bar. Mm -hmm. Right? And, 
and then if you can actually do it, then prove to me that that bar actually is indicative of whether or not they're actually going to be successful in that role. And you can't do it. These bars are completely arbitrary. Even if you can define them, they're yeah. completely arbitrary, right? And so what we want to do is to make sure that we create the type of, of interview process where we can actually identify would they actually be a successful employee into Intuit. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's technology aspects of that. There's cultural fit aspects of that. But, but actually identify something that's less about a bar and more about let's you know, use a series of criteria. And what you want to do or what I do is to work with male frontline male leaders to actually have some of these conversations. Right? And one of the more powerful ways to have the conversation is to talk about the power of diversity. And one of the stories that I've told a couple of different times, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact stat, but when the iPhone was first released, um, the, Apple was looking through the, 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 some of the, the beta testers in terms of the pictures that they took. And they realized sometime around 10, 11% of the pictures were upside down. They're trying to figure out why are like 10, 11% of these pictures upside down? And they realized that, that of their test subjects, which were representative of the broad society, about 10, 11% of them were left-handed. Yes. And because they're left-handed, they held the camera in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a single left-handed person on the, on the Apple development team. They didn't think of that, right? Intuit knows our customers are diverse. The fastest growing segment of small business owners in the U.S. and certainly in the world are female. Right. Right? So in that world where you have a diverse world, racially diverse, uh, gender diversity, mm -hmm. how can you create a product for a diverse world if you don't have a diverse workforce? How could you possibly know what to build? Right? And so you talk through those things with, with your male counterparts, and then they begin to feel and understand what it's like to be in a meeting that actually has diversity in it. And they mm -hmm. actually begin to crave it, and they actually begin to ask to be on those kinds of teams that are actually diverse. And so uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You know, it requires a little bit of maybe a, uh, initially of a nudge to say, hey, mm -hmm. this is important. But then, you know, the best thing is all the proof is there, both personally that I've seen and things that I've read that diverse teams actually work. And once they experience it and they feel it, they actually become advocates as well. Yeah, I know. I love what you're saying here because we've got this whole idea of this sort of this what's right or wrong or moral or what immoral, these yeah. kind of things. But you're saying just even from a business sense and uh, just not even just to make money, but just like to work with the customers. Absolutely. You know, you need to reflect your customer base inside the company. And so uh, it's not even a question of what your beliefs are personally. It's a matter of reflecting uh, who you're serving. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I love that you called that out because when people ask me, Alex, why do you do this? Why do you work mm -hmm. uh, so much on diversity? Why, why are you such a strong advocate? And I say, well, there's two reasons. And the first reason is it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I don't, don't want to like lose that. that yeah. The second reason you do it is exactly what you just said. It's the yeah. competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. How is a company, like, I don't understand how any company could think they could survive without being a diverse company. Interesting. Well, let's talk about it, the company a little bit because uh, some of the things you've been talking about, um, you know, the whole basis of this is technology. Yes. And we're talking about the impact of that. You know, what is the impact and how is this affecting people uh, in terms of the development of these new technologies that you're working on and you and others are working on? Yeah. You know, it's amazing. One of the, one of the amazing things about Intuit is that it's a 35-year-old technology company. 
35-year-old technology company, 1984. Yeah. So it was fine. Yeah, uh, that's like ancient in uh, ancient. today's world, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely ancient. Uh, and so you look at the, the journey that Intuit has taken as a company. We started off as a desktop software company, right? And then we realized, actually, when I was hired in 1999, my first job was working with a team to build the first version of QuickBooks online. So taking the desktop product and putting it right. online, right? I remember. So then, um, you know, then we put the TurboTax and put TurboTax online and, and you know, built this entire kind of online ecosystem. And as we look at our customer bases, we actually were aggressively moving towards saying, okay, how do we force everybody online? And we realized there are large sets of people who actually still want to use the desktop product. Wow. And we made the decision, you know what, that's okay. That's not their problem, that's our problem. And so how do we actually use technology to support some customers who want to use in a disconnected desktop world and some customers, many customers, more customers now who actually want to work online, right? And so that's just one example of uh, a, a possible technology dislocation that was created by the pace at which technology is changing. And the question is, can society actually keep up? And, you know, we were, we were chatting earlier about this amazing book by Thomas Friedman, Thank You for Being Late, where... One of the things that, that he does in that book is he talks to Astro Teller from Google X. And Astro Teller tells him about that generally the way that technology evolution has worked is that you have some innovation and then society catches up. You have an innovation, society catches up. But now the pace of change of technology, the pace of innovation in technology is moving so fast, the society can't catch up and very likely will never catch up. And that, that dissonance between those two things he refers to as the dislocation. And you can see that, you can sense that in society where you have huge parts of the population that just don't know what to do with this, with this boom of technology, right? You've got entire companies who were built on data models and, and ways to deliver uh, outcomes to customers and governments are only now catching up on things like privacy, right? Yeah. So, um, one of the responsibilities and opportunities that we have is Intuit because of who we are, because of our data stewardship principles, because of the customers that we've served traditionally in finances and tax and everything else, is to say, it's not a question of hum it's humanity or technology. It's not an or, it's actually an and, right? We want to be the best AI company in the world as it relates to finances. But we also want to give you a human being when you need it. When you look at a product like TurboTax Live, TurboTax Live has been wonderfully successful. It has exceeded every expectation we've had. And so for those of you who don't know TurboTax Live, you're in TurboTax, you're using the product, and you say, my gosh, I, I just need help. I wish I could talk to someone. You click on a button and someone shows up. Video right there in the product and you can see them. You can't see you. You can see our TV commercials of like, you can be sitting there in your underwear and nobody knows, right? <laughs> well, they look good. You don't have to look good. But the That's point good. is, the product is getting smarter and smarter, right? We're putting more and more AI into it. But, but when you need a human, the human is there. And we believe that one of the ways to close that dislocation is to use the best of the tech to bring people along. So the same technology that, that causes the dislocation can actually be used to bridge the dislocation. And that includes both smart AI products and the technology to allow experts to show up right in front of you and you talk to them right in front of you right. without even needing the product. That is fascinating. Uh, looking at both sides of that and including the people. I mean, one of the things I often um, talk about is what I call the tech effect is how um, 
technology is affecting the way people interact, mm. not even just the, the tools that people uh, desire and all that. Like, you know, we talk about new generations of people who grew up on technology, you know, grew up on their phones yeah, uh, yeah. and not really having that face-to-face -face interaction. Uh, we talk about, um, you know, uh, uh, just the way people interact at work, you know, on technology and maybe uh, virtually not all face-to-face. -face and um, just wondering what you've seen in terms of how that is affecting the way people interact or if you have anything within Intuit that you use to help make sure that the people are still available to each other and, and noticed on the other side of the screen. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The, so my, my son is 14 years old. Uh, yeah. which means he is the oldest um, possible digital native. So he was born in the era of the iPhone. So he's a digital native. His entire life, he's, he's known digital products. Uh, and as we learned, so we actually did an analysis of digital natives and millennials, and you know, we're constantly evaluating different parts of the population and uh, the impact of society and technology trends and things like that. And one of the interesting things about uh, uh, digital natives, or two interesting things we've learned, um, one is, despite the fact they're more connected than anyone before, they're actually lonelier than any generation right. before. Mm -hmm. And the second is, is that because digital natives are constantly connected, they don't actually try to remember information. They remember where to get information. Okay. And so I remember going to a library and reading and memorizing. Yep. And I tell my son these stories and he looks at me like I have three eyes. Why would you do that? Like, why didn't you use Google? Right. Um, right. And so when we, when we understand how people natively interact because of the, the impact of technology and the impact of societal changes on them, it allows us to be more prescriptive in how we want to interact with them. And I think that manifests itself in two primary ways, I think, that, that, that I'd like to bring up. One is that you know, we go back to our roots, to Scott Cook in, in 1984, the founder of Intuit, Mm -hmm. inventing a follow me home by basically watching his wife struggling to balance the checkbook. And then that's when he and his uh, friend, Tom Peru invented Quicken. Mm -hmm. And from that moment, we all as Intuit employees must do what we call follow me homes, which sounds a little creepy, but really <laughs> what, what it means is we want to see our customers in their environment, not bring them into our usability labs. We want to see them in their environment, right? And ask them questions. And there was this amazing moment a couple of years ago where we had this event. We wanted to rekindle our, our the, the connection we have to our customers. And as part of one of the event, uh, part of the event, there was like 400 people at this event. They brought in these tour buses and we all got on these tour buses and they went to random locations in San Diego. They dropped us off and they said, go talk to customers. We'll be back in two hours. Oh, wow. And so you just walk into a Starbucks and it's kind <laughs> of embarrassing. Hi. <laughs> My name is Alex. I work for Intuit. We make software to try to power prosperity around the world. Can I talk to you about money? And almost every single person will say, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love to talk to you. And you about sit down. money, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you sit, well, you give them like a Starbucks card or something like that, yeah, right? Yeah. You ask them questions. Mm -hmm. you ask them questions like, what do you think about money? What the number one answer is that I got from, from talking customers about, what do you think about money? They say, I hate money. Money scares me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't care about money. I care about taking care of my elderly parents. I care about sending my kids to an awesome school. I care about having that one week where we can go on a family vacation and create some memories. I care about the things that money delivers, but I, I'm tired of money, right? 
And when you, when you look at technology companies and the kind of people, we talk about diversity and we'll have all kinds of diversity. What we don't have the diversity of is that. Because working for tech companies, we actually have privilege. Interesting. And so we don't, if you don't actually go talk to your customers, you don't know what their lives are really like. And if we build a product for the average into a employee, we're not solving their problems, right? And so that degree of human interaction, which we teach to every single one to an employee, and in fact, books have been written about Scott Cook and how he has invented the concept of following homes, and other companies do it too. Um, it allows us to continue to stay in touch and to really understand people. And when we understand them, then we can figure out what is the best way for us to interact with them and for them to interact with each other. Right. Right. And so an example is, for example, if we're building a TurboTax for the Latino population of the United States, having the same product in Spanish doesn't solve their problem because they as a society actually have different norms than maybe other parts of society. Right. They actually have referral networks within the Latino society that is more important than being referred by an expert that they don't actually know. So how do we actually enable mechanisms to allow us to enter uh, certain Latino neighborhoods by understanding who these referrers are, getting them, getting them to understand that the product we're making actually makes people's lives better. It legitimately is a good product and it's not just about selling it so that they can be our promoters within that society, right? Mm -hmm. Part of the culture. And so, you, you really need to understand your customer. When you understand your customer, you can cr create mechanisms that allows you to interact with them and them to interact with each other much better. And I'll tell you that, that as we're thinking about the products that we're building and the technology that we're using, it is amazing how it enab enables you to connect with people to each other, right? Connecting small business owners to their customers, connecting consumers to each other, connecting our consumers mm -hmm. to small businesses who can do services for them. We have this latent network that sits behind all the data that we have it into it. And you know, our ability to build products on top of that, I think is gonna revolutionize the way that people think about what it means to be prosperous. And that, that's a world where it's not about the money. It's not about tracking your money. People don't wanna track their money. Tracking the money is not the point, right? The point is, how can I use that money to feel mm -hmm. prosperous? So my family and I feel prosperous and that's, that's why I love working it into it because that's the approach that we take. Wow, that just sums it right up there. I mean, uh, somebody who's working at a company that's all about tracking the money, saying that's not what it's even about. Is you mm -hmm. want to feel the prosperity there, not not the the dollar signs, you know, the the numbers going up. Um, yeah, I, well, our time has flown by, and I just want to say that I've learned a few lessons from you. So many, but. A couple is just looking at the people side of things, both internally, um, how you work things at Intuit, as well as with your customers. And one of the themes that you brought up was having that uh, diversity and understanding the customer. So you do it in part by reflecting, you know, your customer base by having those kinds of uh, people in your company working there so that they could talk about it too, the different cultures that are out there in the world, uh, not just being homogeneous. Uh, but another one is going out there and visiting with customers and finding the type of people who are uh, coming up from all different angles, you know, who are right. buying the product. So uh, that seems like real people-oriented solutions there on, on all sides. It's not just taking one angle, but you're really working at it holistically. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the, the people are definitely at the center. And, and you know, it goes even into the logo of the company. I don't know if you recently looked at the, lo the, the Do It logo, Check right? That out. Yeah. The fact that the, the dot actually isn't over the I, it's actually over the T because it makes it look like a person, right? And it always tells us that the people are at the middle of what we do. Yep. Interesting. Well, do you want people to be able to contact you or Intuit? How would you? Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, feel free to, uh, anyone who's, who's interested can either connect to me on LinkedIn uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at Alex G. Balage. Those are the kind of the two major mediums that I use. Uh, and I'm happy to, if anybody has any follow-up uh, questions or conversations, as I said before, I'm, uh, I'm uh, addicted <laughs> almost <laughs> to the idea of mentoring and coaching and giving back. I, I, I have a leadership coach uh, and I told him I'm thinking about legacy and he said, you're too young to think about legacy, <laughs> but I think about it anyway. And I, I, you know, I think one of the bits of legacy that I have is to take the journey that I've had in my life and to talk about it as much as I can to help other people, the next generation to develop and grow. So uh, please, please everyone feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to have any follow-up conversations. That's fantastic. And we'll have Alex's info in the show notes as well. Well, thank you for being a guest on Reinventing Nerds, Alex. Thank you, Joni. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, and thanks to our listeners and our viewers. We're here at ReinventingNerds.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Reinventing Nerds and encourage you to apply what you learned to help you communicate better. For a free consultation with Joni to see how she can help you further, please visit ReinventingNerds.com. Until then, embrace your inner nerd and remain true to yourself while you develop your communication strategies.